Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Get into that in a minute. I think uh, it's going to be on the screen, is it? Yeah, okay. So we've got it on the big screen as well. Okay, we'll get into that in a minute. We're, we're on a teaching series, right? Having a desire to learn. So this is part three, and that's the title, okay? Having, having a desire to learn, part three. I've been really original with that one. But I'm not really that concerned with the title. It's the message within the, you know, although the title is part of the message. Okay, so having a desire to learn. This couldn't be more ironic and fitting for someone like me studying at Bible college because that's something I've really had to get to grips with. This is a message that's for me just as much as it's for you. It's a message that's for me as much as it's for any person, any, any Christian, this message is for. We all need to have a desire to learn, but especially if you've put, took yourself in at the deep end in Bible college. So I'm having to sit and uh, read for like four or five hours at a time, different books, different complicated theological books. I'm having to take notes and reference stuff, you know. I'm having to sit still for, for, for longer than I've ever had to. <laughs> You know, um, and it's, you know, what I really need is, if I'm going to do this, I need to have that desire. I can't do it otherwise. I need to learn to have that desire. You know, I think it is something that we learn. We learn to have a desire to learn. And um, so, I think the most important, one of the most important things, this is my first point, is to be teachable. Being teachable is an attitude, isn't it? It's something that's, that's extremely important if we're going to have a desire to learn. We need to be teachable. We can't be arrogant thinking we know everything. We can't put a cap on. If, we, if we're arrogance, puts a cap on, on our learning you know, capacities, doesn't it? You know, if we stop being teachable. So that was the first thing that came to mind. And uh, I was led to a scripture in Luke chapter 2. And it's funny because the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of John, and the gospel of Mark, they don't capture this part of Jesus' life. But Jesus, when he was 12 years old, that's only captured in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, so the other Gospels is like, is from a little baby being, um, you know, uh, parented by Mary and Joseph and, and, and being kept safe from the King Herod. And then the jump from there to him being 30 years old and starting his ministry, don't he? But the Gospel of Luke has got some things in there that I think, you know, God wants us to know about Jesus. So this is, uh, this is why I'm looking at this today. I'm just going to read it to start off with. So it's quite a big chunk. So Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 41, down to verse 52. thing to notice is that Jesus was teachable. That's my point, is that Jesus was teachable. If Jesus is our standard, we need to be more like Jesus, you know? And so, you know, Jesus was teachable. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival, according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. 
When they, when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting amongst the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Just pause there for a moment while well, I read it again. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Verse 47. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And Jesus replies, he says, Why were you searching for me? He said, Didn't you know I had to be about my father's, be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them, and he was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And I'm so glad that, that Luke records this, because if Luke didn't record it, we wouldn't know the two things about Jesus that you find out in here. Two things that he's taught me reading this passage of scripture. And the first thing was that Jesus was obedient to his parents. Now, Nathan was just talking a few weeks ago about honor. I'm talking about honoring your mother and father and how important it is, you know, that it's a command in the Old Testament, isn't it? And it's a command that, that commands a blessing as well. When you do it, it promises a blessing for, for long life. You know, but Jesus was obedient to his parents. He honored them. And I like to, you know, I like to look at it like this. Jesus was kind of like a, a bundler of God's love wrapped up in a, in a child, wasn't he? If you can imagine it. Can you imagine being Jesus' parents? Imagine the love in Jesus' eyes. I think Jesus would have loved to, to honor his parents. And I think he would have loved to have been obedient and submitted to their authority. I think it would have been something that pleased him to do that. And even though he knew he had to be somewhere else and he wanted to be somewhere else and he wanted to learn... When he found out how anxious they were, he went with them straight away. He was obedient to them immediately. The second is this, that Jesus is teachable, as we, as we were saying. It says, after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. So Jesus didn't just automatically, although Jesus was a walking revelation of God's word, in his ministry, when he was 30 years old, Practically everything that, that Jesus said was, was straight from the mouth of God. I mean, he was himself God, but in human form. You know, um, but Jesus himself had to go through a time of preparation. So when he was 12 years old, when he was a boy, this tells me that he didn't automatically just know everything. He had to learn. He had to sit and listen to people that knew more about him, that he was teaching him. And of course, he was a genius in that sense. That he was soaking it all up. That's quite clear where it says, everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. You know, it also says in, in verse 52, and Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So my first point is this, it's, it's important to be teachable. Jesus himself was teachable. And I've got a bit of an analogy here that sort of, it's about staying teachable. And it comes from my own experience. I'm going to be quite vulnerable, really. Um, the analogy is this. So, 
Well, just to explain first. I've been through a stage in my life, in my Christian journey, where I started to become arrogant. And I didn't mean to be. I mistook it for maturity. I thought it was mature to think and have the attitude that I don't need, to, don't need church. In such, it's good to come along. And it's good to listen to people preach. But I'd found that level of maturity where, and I think we all need to get to this level of maturity, by the way. Just don't go too far the other way like I did. But it's good to get to that place where we're not living from Sunday to Sunday to get filled with the Holy Spirit. But we're actually feeding ourselves on the Word of God. We're actually feeding ourselves on the presence of God. And we keep our own devotional times. And we're not just coming on church to get filled up with the Holy Spirit and then live without God for the rest of the week. That's a very immature way of, you know, immature Christianity. We need to get to that point where we're feeding ourselves. I think all people that preach from this pulpit do teach that we want to equip you to feed yourselves, you know. But the thing is, I've gone too far the other way. And I'm being vulnerable saying this, but I stayed in this season for a couple of months. And it was God sort of spoke to me and pulled me out of it. But I started to think, you know, I can get more revelation from reading my Bible. And I shut my mind off. I didn't mean to do it, but I was doing it. And I'd become arrogant. I wasn't teachable. So I didn't stay teachable. And the analogy is this. If I was to invent a, a motor car tomorrow, and the motor car had never been invented, I wouldn't just invent a, a Lamborghini, would I? I wouldn't just invent like a, a BMW or a Mercedes because that's standing on the shoulders of other people's wisdom. I'd probably more likely invent a Model T Ford, you know, the very first motor car. And see what happened with the generations after generation of the motor car, evolution of the technology, if you like. People have stood on each other's ideas, and they've made it their own idea, and it's become their idea. But then someone else has stood on it a bit further, standing on the shoulders of giants, should we say. And I think that's like that with faith as well. I think that, you know, I had to realize that a lot of my faith actually comes from listening to other people. It comes from, you know, the preachers that I've loved over the years on YouTube, the, the Todd Whites, the John Bevere's, and the Carter Conlon's, and David Wilkerson's, and all these people that have spoken to my heart, and, and it's become my faith, but I've got the ideas from their faith. I didn't come up with the concept of the Holy Trinity, but I believe it, you know? And it, it, it comes from the community of believers. And I think that's important is that we need, to, we need to know and we need to stay teachable and we need to be willing to learn off other people in our community. And I'm finding this more and more in Bible college that we're learning from each other. It's not just what the teachers are teaching. It's what students are teaching each other. Afterwards, it's like, oh, something might have gone over my head. But then you're picking it up at the dinner table and you're getting it. And then you're working it out. And then you're studying and you're finding it out and you're bouncing stuff off each other. They encourage that kind of that studying, that learning because they know, the teachers know that that's how God's designed us to learn in a community, to win to learn in the community of the church. It's quite obvious when you see the enemy uses the same model. You only have to look at the prison system to see that people that go to prison come out of more hardened criminals. They, come, they learn off each other in community. They learn ideas and manipulating and crying and to become the, you know, the, the more cleverer criminal to get away with stuff. And you, you can see that in the world society, that the world learns off each other. We all do it. It's a design. It can be used for, for good and for evil. You know. But it's important that we take hold of it as well and we learn off each other.
I think mentors are important as well. It's always important to have someone that can speak into your life. I've got Pastor Nathan speaks into my life. There's a few others in this church that speak into my life. But you see, I'm, I'm living in Malvern now, you know. I've had to find another one as well. Because I can't just be relying on Pastor Nathan's wisdom. He's like you know, 200 miles away or whatever. You know, what if he's busy? What if he's, you know, you know what if I need to speak to someone face to face? I've found that in my experience, it works best if you've got two or three people that can speak into your life, that you can trust. Someone that you can speak to about, about anything, you know. Sometimes it's stuff that we've been through that we haven't talked about. Sometimes it's something that's a secret, that we've kept a secret because it's shame or it's maybe it's something that someone else did to you or maybe it's something that you've done that you're not happy with. And it's just speaking to that person that you can trust, that can shed some light on it. Hopefully someone that's full of the Holy Spirit that can speak God's wisdom into your circumstances. But it's important to have mentors as well. I think it's important to have mentors to be accountable when it comes to relationships or big decisions that you're making, to actually have someone to bounce these ideas off and say, is this right or wrong? You know, sometimes we can get mixed up. As far as, as, far as on, on his faith as we are, we all need someone to be accountable to. But on the whole, it's good to have someone in your life who you can learn from who's wiser than you. Wouldn't, wouldn't you agree? Yeah? I think Apostle Paul, um, I did an internet search um, to find a top example of mentorship in the Bible. And this is what came up. So I'm just going to read it out to you. It's not mine. It's, it's off Wikipedia. It's not Wikipedia, but you know what I mean. It says this. It says, The Apostle Paul is far best a biblical example of Christian mentorship. Paul spend, spelt out mentoring very simply. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. In another translation, I might imitate me as I imitate, imitate Christ. That's in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verse 1. But then in Philippians uh, 4, verse 9, it says, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. So Apostle Paul knew the value of having role models as well. And he knew the value of being a role model. So maybe that's, you know, for someone to take hold that, you know, needs to be that role model. But it's, it's good to, I don't think there's anything wrong. And Paul wasn't Christ himself, but he was Christ-like. And he would have had his mistakes, and he wouldn't have been perfect, same as us all. But there's plenty of people that I can think of from my Christian journey. I can see the faults, but you forgive the faults, and you think, but on a whole, if I could be more like them, I won't go too far wrong. And I think it's good to have them role models in the faith to look up to. Look up to. Okay, so... Second point, if we're going to have a desire to learn, what's a different word for desire? What's a better word for, than desire? And I found this, this speaks better, is a hunger. Having a hunger for more. Having a hunger to learn. So it, it says something differently, doesn't it? Then desire's like, I want that. Hunger's like, I can't live without that. Do you know? I need it. I need to consume it. I need to live it. I need my daily dose of it, you know? I can't go on without it. I need to, you know, it's, it's an appetite, building up an appetite, a hunger for more. So a hunger for more of God, or a hunger for more of his presence, a hunger for more of his word, a hunger for a better understanding of God, a study of God. That's what theology actually is. It's a study of God. 
But if we're going to have a desire to learn, I think we must deepen our hunger. And there's two scriptures, scriptures that came to mind. And they're going to come up on the screen here. Matthew uh, chapter 5, verse 6. It says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Do you know, I, I like to put, you know, it's, when it comes to scripture, you know, practical application of scripture, there's always an if, because it's up to us whether we do it tonight, isn't it? And I think that's the same with this scripture. You know, blessed are you if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be filled. There's our part that we have to play in it. And, and on that sort of same sort of token, I just, I, I felt led to say this as well. I think it's important that when, we, when we're listening to prophets or someone's given us a prophetic word, there's always our part to play. It's not just automatically going to come to pass. There's our part to play. And I've seen, I've seen too many people, uh, new Christians especially, that someone's spoken to life and said, I see you speaking to hundreds of thousands of people. I see you doing this. And this might well be a prophetic word. It might well be right. But you see, people can get the, the, uh, the attitude that, oh, I don't need to do anything now because God spoke this, so it's going to happen. Actually, there's our part to play. There's always our part to play. So, so really, prophecy, in that sense, or a word of wisdom, is just one possible future. It's one possible plan for your life. It's God's perfect plan. And maybe that's a glimpse of that. And God's saying, if you stay in my will then this is going to happen. This is my heart for you. But there's our, our part to play. So if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be filled. Jeremiah 29, 13. I love this scripture. And I believe it's a promise. I believe it's a promise for every single person on this planet. Not just in this church. Anybody. The, the, the Muslim, the Hindu, the worldly person, the atheist, the Satanist. Do you know? If you seek me, you know, you will find me he says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Yeah. I want to put an if there as well, do you know? Can you change, did you mind? I want to change the when. It's the same thing anyway. It just makes it a bit more prominent. If you seek me with all your heart, you know, then you will find me. God's promise is that you will find me if. It's a big if. And I believe that this is what God's saying to this church today. Is that he's available to us, do you know? 24-7. God's available. I think that's definitely the, probably the biggest part of this message today is if you don't take anything else away, then take this away. God's available all the time. We might not be. We might make ourselves unavailable, but God's always available. When you wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and you, you can't get back to sleep, God's available then. You know, When you're bored and you're day off and you can't think of anything to do, God's there. God's available if we seek him. If we have a hunger for God, then we will find him. That's the promise. But it's down to us to do the seeking. See, if we're going to hunger for God more, there's something that I think we must do. I think we've got to change our spiritual diet if we want to hunger for God. Do you ever remember, I don't know, this is probably relevant to everyone, but especially to me, do you ever have an auntie or a grandma, or a mum, when you're a little kid, saying, don't eat that Mars bar, it'll ruin your hunger for your dinner, yeah? <laughs> wow, you know, put that in a biblical principle, spiritualize that. Don't feast on the things of this world, because it'll ruin your appetite for God. It'll ruin your hunger. If you're filling yourself with the wrong things, and I'm speaking to myself here, I'm far from perfect. This 
this word has been adjusting my heart over the last six weeks. I've been having to put this into practice because I need a hunger for God. You know, I need to cut some things out of the world. There's certain things that I need to say no to when it comes to worldly entertainment or what's influencing my life. If I'm going to have a hunger for God, then I need to cut some certain things out. He can have spiritual junk food in his lives, and it's not healthy. There's a great example of a man who had a great hunger for God. I'm not talking in the Bible. I'm talking in the last century. In fact, he died only recently, a few years ago. David Wilkerson. Anyone ever heard of David Wilkerson? Founder of Times Square Church. Founder of Teen Challenge. This man was a, a, a preacher in somewhere, I think it was somewhere like uh, Pennsylvania or something. And I think, um, if I'm right, I might be wrong, it's, I think he followed in his dad's footsteps and was also a pastor or something. And, uh, and basically, so he, he was pastoring a church, he was doing God's will, but he wanted more. He wanted more. And he was quite well aware that he was watching TV two hours a night. And if you read the book, The Cross and the Switchblade, you'll find this out. He was watching TV two hours a night. I'm not telling anyone not to do this, by the way. I'm just saying that this is a guy that did it, and look what happened, Right? He cut out his TV and got rid of it. And he, in them two hours a night that he would have watched TV, he decided to pray and seek God. And what happened over, over time, he developed a hunger. Not just his own hunger for his relationship with God, but his hunger to see God's will done and to see where God wanted him to move next and what were breaking God's heart. And it came to his attention that the other side of America, there was these gangs that were getting into trouble and there was like at each other's throats. And there were young kids that were near enough killing each other, stabbing each other. And it's not that much different today, if you think about it. But, but he's he seen it. And it wasn't particularly for the victims. It was for the people doing this. And he wanted to see them. He, he wanted to get involved. And that was uh, the start of Nicky Cruz getting saved. That was the start of Teen Challenge. And that Teen Challenge is in, goodness knows, about over 100 countries. It's, it's worldwide. And there's about 100 and. 80 centers or something throughout something like 100 nations that's amazing that's the guy that turned off his tv for two hours a night and started to pray and got a hunger and sought god it's actually thanks to david wilkerson's turning his tv off and starting to pray that i've benefited from that i've been to team challenge i've seen the benefits of what that christian discipleship program actually does it's amazing and i, I you know I, I just think that's that's amazing that I can say that 50 years later, I'm reaping the fruit of David Wilkerson's time of sacrifice. I've actually got the, uh, the film in the car. I was going to bring it up and you know, show it around. But I was going to give it to Pastor Nathan. I'm going to give it to Pastor Nathan anyway. If anybody hasn't seen that film, it's an old film. It's got Nicky Cruz's testimony. It's a DVD. It's got Nicky Cruz's testimony as well, which is really, really powerful. You want to see a man that's got a hunger for God? Watch that film. I'm going to give it to Pastor Nathan. And if anyone wants to borrow it from Pastor Nathan, borrow it and bring it back and someone else can watch it. But seriously, this is a man, great example of a man with a hunger for God. Just look at the Old Testament briefly. I've got, um, just want to look at another man in the Old Testament with a great hunger for God. So look at Exodus 33 from verses 12 to 15. And the, the context is, 
Moses is having a conversation pretty much face to face without being face to face, if you know what I mean, because he couldn't be face to face. It was only a paragraph later that God said, I, I want to show you my glory. I want to walk past you, but you cannot, you cannot see me face to face because it, it would kill you. So what God does is he puts his hand around Moses' eyes and then walks past him, still with his hand, imagine this, and you see in the back of God as he takes his hand away. You know, it's uh, just an incredible, I can't even imagine what that experience was like. Can you guys imagine what that must have been like? But that's the context is that Moses is so friendly with God, he's having a conversation like it's just me or Pastor Nathan here talking, you know? And so that's the context. And verse 12 said this, it says, One day Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, take these people up to the promised land, but you haven't told me whom you will send with me. You have told me, I know you by name, and I look favorably on you. And if that's true, you look favorably on me. Let me know your ways so I may understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. And remember that this nation is your very own people. The Lord replied, I will personally go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. Everything will be fine for you. Then Moses said, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. How will anyone know that you look favorably on me, on me and on your people, if you don't go with us? For your presence among us sets your people and me apart from other people on this earth. And I just think that's just, Moses had such a hunger for God to see, to see God transform his own life. But not only a hunger for his own life, he wanted his people to be set apart. So I have wrote it down here. It's, this, was, this was Moses' hunger to see, to see uh, God's people be the world's example, do you know? Such a great hunger. So how can we relate that to us? Well, any one of you guys could be Moses, or it could be me, or Pastor Nathan. We could be the ones with a hunger. And the church of Jesus Christ is a, the new Israel, isn't it? So it's like, that is a, the tribe of Israel. It could be, you want to see Junction 28 Church set apart in South Normanton, as being something different to the rest of the people in this place, in this, in this town, in this village, or whatever you call it, or even in Mansfield or whatever. I want people to see that we are different as Christians, that there's something about us as Christians that's something to be desired, something to be attracted to. See, if we personally hunger and thirst for righteousness, if we consecrate our lives to God, if we seek his presence with all our hearts, if we cut the worldliness away from our lifestyles and grow in our hunger for God, our lives will be transformed with godly character. We will bear the fruits of the Holy Spirit. People will see that we are different because we know God, and being a Christian will be attractive to the people that we meet. Amen? Okay, so I'm going to conclude. This is my third point, but it's also a conclusion. It's a bit of a strange way of doing it, but it's just a way I feel led to do it. You ever remember the old jokes? What do you get if you cross? Everyone know what I'm talking about, huh? You're getting your stocking or something, like a hundred jokes from Christmas. What do you get if you cross this and that? Well, this isn't a joke. What do you get if you cross? My first point, a teachable spirit. With my second point, a hunger for God. So what do you get if you cross? A hunger for God with a teachable spirit. And the conclusion is, the answer is, accelerated spiritual growth, you know. We can all grow as Christians over time. You know, it can take a long time to grow as Christians. 
because we come to church, we read our Bible, you know, we do, you know, we, we do get involved, but not fully. And we can grow in God over years and years and years. But what I'm saying is that our lifestyles can be a greenhouse for us to grow. If we've got a teachable spirit, that can be the glass. And the framework can be the hunger for God. And the Holy Spirit in our lives will be the miracle grow. You ever put miracle grow on a plant? Yeah? Yeah, my dad used to rave about it when I was a kid. Miracle grow this, miracle grow that. Well, the Holy Spirit is our miracle grow, isn't he? That's exactly what he is. And we can have that. We can have that accelerated spiritual growth if we hunger for God with a teachable spirit. I'm going to conclude with Psalm number one. So I'm going to read the first three verses. Let's not forget that there's three more verses afterwards talking about people that will be cut off in eternal separation from God. And I think it's important that we remember that. That's not this message today. But I want to add it anyway and say let's not forget Psalm number one, verse four, five, and six. I'm going to concentrate on Psalm number one, verse one, two, and three because it's about spiritual growth, you know. But I think it still needs to be said that there's people out there that are lost. There's people out there that don't know Jesus. There's people out there that ain't growing spiritually or growing spiritually the wrong way, you know. And I think it's important that we remember that. Um, But verse number one. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. So... Let's put this in context of it being us. He or she. What am I talking about here? You. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. He or she who does not walk in step with the wicked. He or she that does not stand in the way that sinners take. He or she that does not sit in the company of mockers. What's this person doing? They've cut some things out of their life, haven't they? In order to grow spiritually. Well, there's things we need to cut out. Now, you be the judge of what it is. Your own convictions. I'm not here to tell you how to live your life or what to do, you know. But I'm just making it aware that if we want to grow spiritually, there is things we're going to have to cut away. So verse 2, and I love verse 2. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates in this law day and night. So he or she, in verse number 2, has a hunger for more. He or she has a desire, has a desire to, to delight in the law of the Lord, to know God more to know God's ways more, to put them into practice, to obey, to be obedient, to be teachable to it. So verse number one, cut things out of your life. Verse number two, um, have a hunger and be teachable, brings us to the conclusion, verse number three, which is spiritual growth. Is everybody looking at it? Verse three, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in season and whose leaves does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Now, I'm not talk- we don't think this is talking about financially prospering, by the way. I mean, this is talking about riches that money can't provide. You know, if I've got a rich relationship with God and somebody that's a billionaire hasn't, then I've got everything and he's got nothing. And that's the truth, right? You can't take your riches with you. Our wealth is in seeing, you know, uh, our own relationship with God growing but also our families and praying over our families and having godly children and bringing them up in the, in the sense that, you know, you're prospering because God's putting you in positions. And it's not, it's financial is a very small part of it. Prospering is a lot bigger. 
you know, than just that. But just to finish with this, and I'm going to hand the microphone back. We go back to Jesus being age 12. Jesus was a tree planted by streams of water. He yielded his fruit in season, and his leaves did not wither, and everything he did prospered. Why? Because he delighted in the law of the Lord, and he meditated in that Lord day and night. He had a, Jesus had a hunger for more. Jesus was teachable. And you see, Jesus didn't bear the kind, not the kind of miraculous fruit until what's not recorded anyway, until he was 30 years old. So Jesus bared fruit in season. And I think, you know, this is maybe a, a word for someone. I don't know. Could be. But it's saying that if you are consecrating your life to God, if you're living in holiness, if you're being teachable and you've got hunger for God, but you're not bearing the kind of fruit that you want to bear, don't worry about it. It took Jesus 30 years, yeah? But he, I'm sure he was bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit as in his character was wonderful. I'm sure he was bearing all the fruits of the Holy Spirit, the joy, peace, love, patience, and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, with the, with the Holy Spirit. I'm sure his character was bearing fruit. But the kind of miracles that we saw, that people saw in that day that were recorded, that happened in season. So if you're not bearing fruit right now, but you are consecrating yourself to the Lord, don't overthink it, you know, keep preparing yourself. And that's it, I'm finished.